What up, y'all? This is Open Mike Eagle. This is three. Yeah, this is not three anything. Actually, it kind of is. This is season three, episode 11 of what it happened was. Voted world's favorite podcast by Home and Garden Television 2017. It didn't make any sense at all. I'm sorry, I'm in a hotel room in Berlin. I'm a little out of my mind. I've been on tour for so many days that I don't remember what days mean anymore. Um, luckily, we have a night off, so I don't have to record this when I'm inebriated. Because that's been happening a couple times these, la- these, these last other weeks, if you couldn't tell. And you probably think I am right now, but I'm not. It's enough about me. Except that I'm going to be rapping in Norway for tomorrow for the first time. And when I was a child, if you told me as an adult, somebody would pay me to rap in Norway, I'd have said, get away from me, you maniac, before I call the police. Huh, but it's happening. And I'm sure um, if you had told a young Dante Ross that he was going to produce a multi-platinum have country blues half hip-hop sound and rap album would ever last when he was an adult he just said hey get the fuck out of my face or something the way dante would say it that's a that was a terrible dante impression but i'm not that good at impressions so it's fine um but yes this episode is about that multi-platinum album and the story of how it came together and the the amount of loss that almost happened while it was being made and and just the the positive influence that the making of it had on both Dante's life and Everlast's life I think are really the big takeaways from when you hear how the story came out and you know you can easily say that doing this project and releasing it changed both of their lives and um, I don't know it's really something to hear I didn't know that this meant that much to them when I was first hearing this music. Um, so it really has kind of put it in a whole new life for me. But let's get into it. Season three, episode 11. It's Dante Ross's Everlast. It's Whitey Ford Sings the Blues. It's me in a Berlin hotel room. It's what it happened was. Welcome in, this is Open Mike Eagle. This is season three of what it happened was, y'all. We got another very special guest with us. He needs no introduction, but... If you ever read the line of notes on classics from all kind of folks, you know who knew where to find the dope. It's Dante serving stories like entrees. I guess for season three, it's a giant like Andre. Mr. No Shit Taker, the third base hit maker. Eganar innovator, the ODB motivator. He signed a roster full of heavy hitters. Office messenger, the Grammy winner. Motherfucker Dante Ross. In the 90s, you would call him the plug. Signing act after dope act. He saw in the clubs was Pete, CL leaders, Dale, and all the above. If you don't know him, don't call him a scrub. It's what it happened was. Yeah. 
Check one, two. What up? This is Open Mike Eagle here coming at y'all with another episode of what had happened was. Um, hold on, my printer's making some weird noises. Let that happen. But um, I'm going to introduce once again our specials. My printer is just going crazy real quick. I'm going to introduce <laughs> once again our special season three every episode guest, Mr. Dante Ross. How you doing today? What's up, man? How are you? I'm chilling, dude. I'm chilling. It's been a minute since we've been able to connect. Um, yeah, man. And in the interim, just being who you are, I figured you'd have a pretty interesting take on this. I was curious if you caught that KRS-One versus Big Daddy Kane versus- I did. I did. Um, I thought that KRS-One has a better catalog. Big Daddy Kane was a better performer to me. Mm, that's interesting. Um, I, thought, I, I thought that KRS-One, like- he kind of forgot his lyrics sometimes or relied on the crowd. Um, and he has like more kind of crowd pleasing songs, but Kane's breath control was flawless. Look, years and years, peep my game while your tears are fear. Kane. Kane's breath control is incredible. Like to be somebody his age doing rhymes where like, where does he even breathe? Uh, in, in that room and under that amount of pressure to perform, like, I don't know. I, th I thought that was really an insane display of, like, technique. I agree. I, I liked Kane. I think his general presence better, but you just can't fuck with Karras when his catalog. Right. He has, like, you know, he has, like, those kind of super rowdy songs that, like, Im involve the crowd a little more than Kane. <laughs> So his catalog, I think, was superior, but but um, but I but I thought that Kane's overall performance was better. Am I wrong? Um, I think I think overall performance is right in terms of like skill and technique, but I think Karis won. His size on stage is really intimidating. Yo, that's part of it, man. He's so big. Yeah, and he's jumping up and down, and him and Kid Capri had the good call and response. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. So what do you I think? Also, what I like, you know, like what I like about Kane, I, I don't know Kane well, I know him a little bit, mm -hmm. but he's just, he is really that cool. He's just that He seems cool. like him. He's so cool. It's crazy. Like what do you think about how big Versus has gotten? Like, what do you think that says about like the legacy of, of hip hop? Well, I think, I think that um, we had really fully formed artists mm -hmm. that counted um, for a long period of time, right? These guys had long, they had careers. They, they might've only had three or four records that really connected, but, but that's, you know, that's a five plus year arc. So that stuff resonates. And those songs still get played in the nineties set everywhere where, you know, nowadays we don't have guys who make lasting records, timeless records. You have records of the moment. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, no one, no one's going back to listen to, you know, mumble face fucking X, <laughs> Y, and Z in 10 years. But, People go back and listen to Kane and Rakim and Karis One and Cypress Hill or even like, you know, whoever it is, Bust Rhymes. And I think that says a lot about the quality of music. The music resonates for a much longer period of time. And one thing I really appreciated about it, too, was just that it's a new way to mine the value that's still there. You know, like the value in the music and like what the music means to people is fully on display. Right, right. And the, and the music is... um. 
embedded in the culture of, of people our age now. And, and I also thought that um, when you have a battle like this, like no one really wins, we win. Right. The culture wins. There's not really a, a, a you know, a clear-cut winner. I think some of that's subjective. And, and um, I like to think they both win, you know? I agree. And I also think that the fact that they don't try to make a clear winner is another, it's a genius thing. Because then we can just talk about it for weeks. You know, and I think that's really, I mean, versus really smart. I want to get, I want to do a punk rock versus. I keep wanting to get Black Flag versus the Bad Branch. That's what's up. <laughs> you see, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and that kind of points back to, um, you know, where we started talking was back in your punk days. And, you know, we started with you uh, in the music scene in New York, uh, covered you working with Rush and early Def Jam and went through Tommy Boy. Um, and then just about everything else we've covered so far has been you with Electra, but with the the project and the era that we're talking about here today, this is when you were leaving Electra, or you had just left. So to be chronologically correct, I left Electra to, to do a, my own label deal at Def Jam. It was not successful. And then I basically like, I, I kind of, I don't want to say one on boycott, but I kind of like just was like, I'm not coming to work. Like, I got a check coming in. They got to pay me for a couple of years. Fuck this bullshit. And I kept it moving, and I stumbled upon making a record with my friend Everlast. Before we get to that, uh, just, just to kind of set the table for people in terms of what was going on with you, like, just so we can state it clearly, what was the reason you felt like it was time to move on from Electra? Um, so... Sylvia Rowan took over and she didn't care for me. Mm -hmm. And I was subjected to an environment that was that felt hostile to me. Um, I didn't feel comfortable. She was reaching out to my artist without me being involved, not keeping me in the loop purposefully. And I had heard on the street that she was probably going to fire me when my contract was up. And this is no knock on Sylvia. Look, man, you get a new boss, they don't like the old guy, right? And And I don't think she was ever a fan of me for whatever reason. My Pete Rock record came up short. My Pooh Bar record was way over budget. And she was really blaming me for it. And it was Pooh Bar's fault. I'm not Pooh Bar, I can't make him show up. Mm -hmm. But that was part of it. My second Pete Rock record didn't have a hit single. So she had me on the ropes. I had Old Dirty Bastard and I had Buster in my back pocket. And when Old Dirty Bastard hit, I went and took a job at Def Jam because they knew I was unhappy and they offered me money. I think the culmination was, the third brand Nubian record tanking. And I was like, oh, for three on her watch. She wasn't feeling me. Mm -hmm. That third brand Nubian record being is that everything is everything? Yeah, which gotcha. was a misguided record. Definitely a little, a little uh mixed direction on that one, for sure. Yeah, they yeah, it was it was misguided, you know, and I kind of didn't stop them, but you you know, there was no stopping those guys. Let's be real. Word. Like you're not gonna like, like as an AR guy, you you don't have that power. And um, I let them shoot themselves in the foot. I knew it wasn't a great record. I got the first single literally on my own, added the Hot 97, and she pulled the plug on the record, and she wasn't feeling me. So, mm. you know, it was time for me to make a move, so I made a move. Word. I, if I should have hung in there until she fired me, because I would have got the credit for Buster mm. who I was in the middle doing and Old Dirty Bastard, but fuck it, I'm who I am. Before we completely get out of the Electra era, um, we covered, you know, a lot of big artists in your time there. There's a few rappers that were signed to Electra, and I'm just curious about like a role. But wait, I have to say one thing for yeah, Sylvia Rohn. For sure. After I left, she sent me 
uh, old dirty bastard royalty and a Buster Rhymes royalty. And I called her up when I got the the old dirty bastard one is for a significant amount of money. I said, thank you. This might be a mistake because I don't work there anymore. She said, baby, you earned this. Enjoy. That's dope. And then she sent me a Buster one. That's super so dope. So I can't, for, for any of my misgivings mis, uh, about working for her, she definitely did me a solid and threw me uh, a couple of bones. And look, man, that's a classy act. And as you know, I respect her. I just didn't like working for her, but I respect her emphatically. She's just, and she also has an A&R person or as a, a label head. So she's a different kind of person to me. I really, I, I, I care about the culture and, and the music with some form of integrity. She hears the hits. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not that, I'm not driven by the radio hit the way she was. And that's to her credit and to my fault. Got you. So you make your peace with Elektra uh, and you're stepping out into a role at Def Jam where you have your own imprint um what was the like what 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 were you in your mind like mentally what were you being what were you getting ready to do like what did you want to do with that new imprint so so i i signed trigger the gambler he's oh, the first that's act what's i up. signed i got the mad act that's a bad act it's like that act i'm the broken link with your vent on your dread axe take cities or wet axe that's the fat act you're running hot out i slip up out of the slot it was like a competitive situation and look, the record wasn't up to snuff. Smooth the Hustle didn't go the distance, and I got caught holding the bag. I signed D.V. Elias Christ. We had a minor hit with My Crew Can't Go For That from Nutty Professor Soundtrack. Yeah. My crew can't go for that, no, uh-huh. No can do now. My crew can't go for that, can't go for that, can't go for that, no can do now. And I had no success other than that. I worked on the Nutty Professor Soundtrack. Um, for reasons I will fully own, I never really fit in at Def Jam. It wasn't my place to be. Certain people who worked there did not like my style, and I knew it wasn't working out. So I just was like, "Fuck it, I ain't even going to work. They got to pay me later." So who's running Def Jam then? Because I know you had worked, you had worked around there in the beginning. Leor Cohen and Julie Greenwald, Julie Greenwald and and Leor Cohen, and Chris Lighty was in there. He had Violator, and I did the deal to go over there with Chris. And I love Chris, but it just wasn't working out. I couldn't get along with Lior at that point. We, we've since um, mended fences. But Julie Greenwald, she's had the, um, you know, Julie Greenwald, she's kind of fired me twice in my life or <laughs> handed me my walking papers twice. So, you know, like, and she's a killer at what she does. But, you know, I don't think she ever particularly cared for me. And it just didn't work out for me. It wasn't my thing. It wasn't. I walked in there, I think I had my chest puffed out too far. And, and look, they, they weren't... Um, they weren't psyched on me. Uh, Lior was, but it went bad really quick. I think it went bad because I managed to dot X and they wanted me to sign them and I signed them aloud because they wanted all my eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. After that, it kind of went sour. Mm -hmm. So that's the dot X, the solo album, the, the Wild Cowboys when it came yeah. out on loud. Yeah, and that, and that wasn't a hit record either. So you could say I was cold and it was one of the first times in my whole life I was cold. I've since been called a few times. And that was a great album, though. That Wild Cowboys was a great album. I liked it. I care for it. You know, some people liked it, some didn't. But like I said, I was uh, cold for the first time in my life. I was on a, a losing streak. And, um, you know, fuck, man. It was, it was bugged out. A lot of doors closed for me. People who were my peoples weren't getting back to me on the phone. And I've since come to know that's just the way this shit works. I don't think I knew it till then. So that's how things were, you know, in that moment business-wise. But I'm curious how things were for you personally, uh, leaving Electra and stepping into this new role at Def Jam. Like, what was life like for you? I was going out with the wrong woman. 
I, I was, I had been with this one lady for a long time and I was in my early thirties, late twenties. And I was, I was antsy. I wanted to, you know, I let, I let uh, my physical wants overtake common sense and I ended up with the wrong chick. Between that and the cold streak I was on, life was, was a little hectic and, you know, it was a little crazy. And, you know, like, um, at that point in my life, I had a problem with my hands and that problem with my hands was, was arising a lot. And, mm-hmm. you know, like back then I, I was very quick to punch someone in their mouth. You know, I just was like acting up a lot. And, and I was in, um, I, I was pissed off and, you know, I wasn't at my best. I was definitely not in my best behavior. So in this kind of period where, you know, things are getting a little more difficult and you have the job at Dev Jam, you decide to make a, a very unique kind of album. And that's the one we're here to talk about today with Everlast, which is Whitey Ford Sings the Blues. Well, there's, there's a prelude to it. In, in times of um, uncertainty, creativity always solves my problems. Hmm. I'm not the kind of guy who could go and invest his money in something and watch the dividends take place. I always kind of go back to my core creative being to fix my problems. And I started making a lot of music and I started looking at music outside of what I was doing, mostly because I didn't necessarily like the music that was hitting then. I wasn't a shiny suit guy. I didn't like the rap karaoke. I've come to appreciate it now. Um, So we're talking about like 96, 97, that kind of era. Exactly. Like 97. It was far away from what inspired me to love and become involved in hip hop. Um, So I started listening to other music and, and that other music, um, things like Massive Attack and Portishead and, and Tricky, Go Back and Beastie Boys, who are my friends, and a lot of alternative kind of stuff that was that was happening at that point. And, and went back to kind of the roots of what I really liked, whether it was Britpop, like Oasis, or even Pavement, or mm-hmm. all this other stuff that was happening musically that was intriguing to me. And I started to look beyond the genre of just hip hop. And I started, you know, Rage Against the Machine was a big component in that too, because they mixed a lot of things together that I liked. And it was heavy. And I started saying to myself, there's this other thing that's happening and all these cool rock bands are rapping, whether it's Rage or Beck, mm-hmm. we're very different. Or even Cake or Massive Attack or Portishead using hip hop elements or, or Oasis who had nothing to do with hip hop, but just made really good music to me. I was like, this shit is interesting. And I kind of turned away from what was happening in hip hop and I keyed into some other kind of music. Um, you know, and the inverse was I, was, I was making a lot of beats, but I was making different kinds of beats. And I worked with this one band and we almost got them a deal. They fucked it all up. The band, it all went shitty at the end, but the demo was really good. And I met with every head of every label. They broke up and then I did a record with the kid later. But it said to me, I'm on to something. Hmm. I'm figuring this out. And I experimented with kind of sounds and things I had never done before. It said to me, there's something there. So me and Everlast had always talked about working together. I think he looked at me as like, maybe the next guy after Muggs, because that relationship had fallen apart. Hmm. And I kind of was always in that realm anyway. I knew all those guys. And, and he suggested, I saw him in New York. He said, we should work on some shit sometime. I said, that'd be dope. And I went to LA a few months later and I had a beat tape with me and I gave it to him and he, he picked the beat right away. Unfortunately, Casual ended up grabbing the beat and I did it for Casual. Um, but that said, he had, I had a couple of beats on there he liked. He was like, yo, I'm gonna come to New York. Let's work on some shit. He was on Tommy Boy. 
he was gone, he had broke up House of Pain and he came to New York and we worked on some joints, but they were like rap joints. One of them was Dollar Bill that ended up on the album exactly the same. One of them was Ends, which was a rap song that my boy had done. My man Sibba did. And we worked on another one. I think we worked on the letter. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. All the broken hearts and the unpaid dues. What you did to me, what I did to you. I ain't mad at you, boo. So what we gonna do? We were working on some other things. We had some things in the air with beats and stuff he had picked. And we're talking about doing that Ramal Z joint, the, the bebop. And, and some things, and he was around me. I was making beats a lot. Me and John Gamble were making, we were in the basement making shit. Like I was prolific. I made a lot of beats in that time period. I would make two, three beats a, a day, like two beats a day, pretty much every day, like four days a week. Just making shit, making shit. I liked what I was doing. So he took the, the demos to Tommy Boy and they were like, cool. And we're still working. My man, Albie was an A&R guy. And um, one, I, had, I had an acoustic guitar in the studio. It was really John's. He had a, a, I think he had a, a dub, no, a hummingbird. And I don't really play guitar. I can play a little, little bit. I can play some keyboards and some drums, but mostly I played a sampler, to be honest. And mm -hmm. I'm a one finger, one finger, two finger genius on the keyboard. So <laughs> Eric was like, hey, can I take that home and, and rock with him? And Eric is Everlast, just for, just for people that don't know. Everlast. And I knew he played guitar. You know, he had the guitar in the house in, in L.A., and, he had played like he would always play like Soundgarden songs and all the shit. That's another thing I was into. I was like listening to Soundgarden and and all this other shit. A little after the fact, but I, I missed Soundgarden with the first grunge thing. And then I really tuned into it. I loved them and a bunch of other shit. We were, he was turning me on to some some rock shit I kind of just missed. He he um took it home the guitar and so like I I was like going through it with this girl. So of course at that point in my life when I'm going through it with the woman. The cure for that is to to go and mess with six other women you shouldn't mess with. Uh, I was a good-looking guy back then. I had I had the savoir faire, um, so to speak. I always had a lot of games, so mm -hmm. I was messing with like a different chick, like every coach. You know, he was like, "How do you do it?" I'm like, "Leave me alone." Um, so so he was. Oh, I forgot to say this. So Everlast, who had this big house in the hills, was living on my shitty couch. That like old dirty bastard and. 18 other rappers had slept on over the years that smelled like old rappers and bong juice. Yikes. But he didn't care because he's a, he's a very humble person. He just wanted to make music. His vibe, his vibe was actually amazing. Mine wasn't. And I had a little studio in the back of my house too with the 1200 set up and records and shit. I came, this, I always remember this like clear as bell and so does he. Because my preference, I'm a multicultural person. I haven't necessarily had a lot of um, women who look like me as as my significant others gotcha. or people I dated, right? So I'm I'm eclectic. But I I came home and I was hanging out with this girl named Shannon, and she she's an Irish girl. She had blue uh, blue eyes and black hair and very white skin. She's very pretty, but not not the typical physical woman I I would mess with. So I walked in the house and I never got this. Eric was sitting there with the guitar in his lap and like a pair of boxers I think or something. And he looked at me and he goes, 
home team? And I said, home team. <laughs> and he gave me the pound. He went like this. He was like, yeah. I was like, okay, weirdo. So wow. I, go, I go in my bedroom. I had a big apartment. It was like a, a pretty big apartment. Two bedroom and a big living room. It was like a duplex thing. I went in the bedroom and I was hanging out with homegirl, whatever, this at the other end. And I heard, um, you know, I, went to, I, was, I got up to go to the bathroom and I heard Eric playing the song. And it was really fucking cool. And I was like, what? I was in my boxers. I was like, what the fuck is that? So you got two, two guys who have basically failed out of the hip hop world <laughs> in their boxers in my living room. And he's got a guitar on and I got a, a girl in the bedroom. And he's, he's playing the song. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? He's like, oh, this little thing. I got, you know, I got like it's a song. And he's, he's like, you know, he starts singing it to me. And I'm like, yo, that shit's crazy. Play that again. And he played it again. I was like, that shit is crazy. That's what we need to do. Mm. And he's like, I don't know, man. I, once we do that, we can't go back. And I was like, fuck going back. That shit's the shit. And the song was what it's like. And had it was to be. Had to be what it's like. It was basically exactly how it is. No drums, same everything. Just him and acoustic guitar, same intro. And you know, the first four bars of that that catches you. It's it's yeah. air, it's an earworm, man. The way it, it just the way it starts, it's it's beautiful. So, and you know, like look, I love Neil Young and I love Van Morrison, Bob Dylan, and it hit me the way that shit hit me. Hmm. So the cat Terry Callier kind of does stuff like that, like and it just hit me the way this this great singer-songwriter shit I like hit me. And, you know, that's like my, my mom's music. I grew up on that, whether it's Bill Withers, whatever it is in that, in that idiom I love. And, and I thought his vocal was tremendous. So I was like, yeah. So I went back in the bedroom and I hung out with homegirl, whatever. And she, she, you know, the next day we went to the studio and um, I was like, bring the car to the studio. He's like, why? I was like, bring it to the studio. So we brought it to the studio and I was like, yo, man, play that shit. And to John, because John Gamble... He, he, he wasn't really like an A&R cat. He was like mm -hmm. more of a technical cat. But he had said to me when I was hanging out with, with Everlast, because I had gone to L.A. and me and Eric were hanging out. And he said, you know, if Everlast ever wanted to do rock, like rock rap stuff, like a rage type thing, he'd be really fucking good at it. Mm -hmm. He's like, I was like, why do you say that? He's like, well, you tell me he can play guitar a little bit. And he's like, and you know, he raps kind of like that style. Like he could probably kill that shit. And I was like, that's an interesting idea. So... I convinced Eric to play the song for John. And John was like, that shit is dope. And I was like, yo, you need to do that. He's like, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. I was like, okay. And we, we were working on some rap shit. But we went home. Another, uh, He brought the guitar home again. And he was playing guitar. And he had another song that became Seven Years. And I was like, yo, man, I stayed on him for a couple of days. Yo, we got to do that. We got to do that. We got to mm -hmm. do that. And so I went to the studio before he did. We had another guitar there. I don't think he brought the same guitar. We had a couple of guitars on there. Because John played guitar. I was like, yo, play that shit again. But I got there earlier and I had chopped up the, uh, a drum loop, I'll leave nameless, that became the drums for that song. I chopped it up and I knew I kind of estimated the tempo. Hmm. And I was like, yo, check this out. Yo, play it to this. And I slowed it down a little bit more and it was that drum beat and he played the song and we all knew we had something. Hmm. That shit was magical. We we're like, this shit, is, this shit is that shit. Like a couple times in my life, I've been in the studio and heard some shit that was magic. That was one of the times. That shit was magic. Like when 
when I first heard Brooklyn Zoo, it was magic. We yeah. weren't in the studio though. But like when when Grand Poobah did the raps for for um Step to the Rear, that show was magic. When they made all for one in the studio, it was magic. Right? A few times I've been around the magic. This shit was magic. But it was magic in a world I wasn't um yeah. accustomed to being in. Exactly. Right? That's not the world I work in. So but look, man, I'm an eclectic dude. I, I know a lot about music. And I'd done these demos with these kids before that were not like Whitey Ford Sings the Blues, but they weren't unlike Whitey Ford Sings the Blues. They were more trip-hop-leaning rock rap, a little more sardonic. And, and look, and those demos got to everyone. Like, I met with the head of Elektra, the head Josh Deutsch. I met with Michael Goldstein, who ran DreamWorks. So I knew that I knew something about tapping into that world. I had, had an inclination and a, a modicum of attention for it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is incredible. So I used some of the lessons I... I had taught myself on that, me and John, and I can't underestimate John Gamble, rest in peace, because he was so critical to the record. Because there are things I don't know how to do, and I had the vision for them, but he could help me, me and Everlast execute them. He could figure out the way to do it, the technical side, and, and more than that, just a, a sonic side. He, he had a roadmap that I didn't possess. So we started doing this record, and, and Eric had a second song, and it, it was seven years. And I liked it, but the way he played it first wasn't exactly how I heard it. I heard it more like, oh, this could be like a bouncy New Orleans type thing. Hmm. And he was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. And I chopped up a famous drum loop and we used it as a click track and he put it together. I had my man come and play piano on it. And I got a trumpet player. My man, Dan Doolin came and he played trumpet on a little bit. And, and I was like, this shit's dope. chopped up another famous break in the, in the break and added some shit in. It, it's a lot like the finished demo. So he took those songs, the letter and dollar bill to Tommy Boy. So, so, so just, just, he had ends, what it's like. No, no ends. No ends. ends not, no ends. Rap, he had ends as a rap song. Okay. Different ends. It's not the one that song. ended up being. No, it sounded okay. like One Love by Nas. It's okay. that style beat. We had that. We had another song we shelved. We had um, the letter, which we kept, and that demo is the one. The one on the album is a demo from my basement wow. studio. Seven years, and what it's like in Dollar Bill. I think he won with those four songs. And those took him into Tommy Boy. Picked. Yeah, he took him in there. And I got the call from Monica Lynch and my friend Albie, and Monica Lynch said, this is incredible. And, like, I love Monica. She's one of my mentors, so, and she really knows music. And for her to tell me that, I was like, wow. She's like, look, we're going to green light you to do the rest of the album. You guys should figure out how you want to do it. But this right here, these two, these songs all work together. And this song, what it's like in the song Seven Years, this is, this is, the, strong, this is the strong part of the record. This mm -hmm. is it. Like, this is where it's at. And I, I already knew that. Because, look, Everlast is a good rapper, but what we were doing was, was to me, groundbreaking. So... At least for me, you know, and look, we're not the first people to do it. And I always said Beck was a huge influence. I've seen the Dust Brothers do that. I always looked up to them. I always said Everlast was was Beck with a shitty attitude. <laughs> I was like, Everlast is Beck with a gold chain. Kick Dark your Beck. <laughs> right, exactly. He's 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 the Beck you don't want to talk funny style to. And Everlast and me, like, you know, sometimes you know people for a long time, but you spend this time together where you become so 
in tune with each other. We're like brothers to this day. I mean, I love him. He's one of my best friends. And we had this symbiotic musical relationship where we could just, without saying it, know it, mm -hmm. you know? And he very rarely doubted me and I very rarely did shit he didn't like. Um, and vice versa, he rarely came to me with a song I didn't like. I really didn't have to fix the songs up a lot. The basis of the song was his. Therefore, he was the songwriter. That's why, like in most rap records, the producer was half the songwriter. On these records, I wasn't necessarily the mm. songwriter because he bought me a good songs, man. I didn't have to do that much. I mean, I had to do a lot, but I didn't have to change the song. You had to do a structure. lot of production. You didn't have to do a lot of songwriting. Right. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. Not a lot of arranging either. Yeah. He under, I did musical and vocal arranging, but song arranging, his arrangements were tight. He knew how to arrange and write songs. He was a student of, of great singer-songwriter stuff. He, it's funny too, because he would tell me that he, he loved Cat Stevens. I never really loved Cat Stevens. I always felt the more Neil Young vibe of it. But, but regardless, so we're, we're trudging along. We got the green light to make the record. I come home one night after catching my ex-girlfriend with this dude I knew. And <laughs> it was a fucking fiasco. Okay. So you, I took, yeah, you I was took going a through it a little bit. I took a, I took a baseball bat to my closet. <sighs> Eric didn't do shit. He just heard me destroy my closet. And he was like, what the fuck? I was like, dude, I'm gonna fucking kill this fucking dude. Mm. I'm fucking so, and he's like, you know what, man? Homegirl's putting you through it. You just, you're not living right. Like, let's go to LA and make the record. Mm. I was like, we can do that. He's like, fuck yeah, we can do that. I was like, I was like without even thinking, I was like, I'm in. <laughs> I was like, let's go. So I had to sell it to John and, and we had to figure out, and once again, John becomes so crucial. So John goes to LA and he builds a replica studio we tell Eric what we need, and he kind of builds a replica studio of our pre-production studio. Wow. We had a 16-inch, a 16-track, one-inch tape machine that sounded fucking great. We got a couple of ADATs, which we had, which sounded like shit. Um, a preamp. He didn't really get a good preamp. We brought ours. So we took all of our samplers, our keyboards, our wacky little keyboard collection, which was pretty cool, and 
I want to say 14 boxes of records. It might be 11. And I sent them all to LA. Because one thing about the Everlast record, he had the songs, but I made a lot of that shit like right there in the studio. Like, mm. oh, this drum loop. And let me chop this up. And I'm going to add this little fucking crazy dub sample from over here. And I'm going to take this fucking weird rock psych record and chop this little piece in here. And then I'm going to, and that's kind of how we made the record. So we went to LA and there was a couple of technical problems. The machine he had was the new version. It wouldn't necessarily read one of our old tapes. We had to do some stuff over. We had to go to a big studio and transfer stuff. So that was one technical hindrance. Hmm. Um, the other was our studio was built like a studio. Eric's house is not built like a studio. So we had to run like a 40-foot snake into the living room, which had these big high ceilings and rafters. Sounded great, had this natural reverb, but we had to figure out how to do it and do it by remote with no camera. So we're doing it all through the talkback. We wow. can't really see him. And often I would go into the living room with headphones and sit with Eric and John would talk us, talk us through it and I would kind of coach Eric through it and vice versa. So that's how we did a lot of the vocals and we just started making records. And, you know, we, we didn't move that fast. We didn't throw away too many records. Um, and we needed some parts. So in New York, I had a lot of musicians. I had keyboard players. I had my friend who played trumpet. I knew bass players. LA, I didn't have this, this, mm -hmm. the network. you know, I, I didn't have the bullpen of musicians, but it's so crazy. I, I had, you know, I had it before, this is fucked up. Before I went to LA, I had a girl in LA. Does that make sense? <laughs> so I went to LA and an old girl picked me up at the airport and she was a really cool girl. Pauline Takahashi, and she, she drove me to Eric's house. John was already there. We're going to all live in Eric's house, which is a story I'll get to later. And don't ever live with the artist and the engineer if you don't have to. <laughs> so, so, but she, we hung out for a couple hours, and then I left with Pauline. I said, look, man, I'm going to drop my shit off. I went right to the house, and um, I'll be back here in the morning. And I remember this. Pauline was like, you guys have such amazing chemistry and energy. This record, the record you're about to make is going to be amazing. And I was like, how do you know that? She's like, I'm telling you, I know that. And she was kind of a hippie. She kind of did know some shit. She was like the perfect woman for me at that time in my life. She was everything I'm not. She was a vegetarian and a hippie and super sweet. And I'm a crabby New Yorker, so um, who likes to eat cheeseburgers? So we, <laughs> you know, on paper, we didn't work. We, she was great, though. Here's the crazy thing. I didn't drive. I'm living in L.A. Mm. I don't drive. John, we have one car. John picks me up almost every day. From Mount Olympus comes down to Hollywood, picks me up and takes me back. I live right off Melrose. And we started making this record. We, we go out to a party. It's like an art opening in a bong store gallery called Galaxy Cafe that was on Melrose. And this band's playing. The band's not that good, but the keyboard player is fucking incredible. And I ask, and my girlfriend's like, oh, that's my friend Keith is. Like, that's my boy. And I'm like, really? Introduce me, and I walk up to him. Me and Everlast were like, no, me and John were like, this guy's great. And I'm like, what's your name? I'm making this record. I really would love you to play on it and work on it with me. And like, you know, you're a fantastic musician. And he's like, cool. I was like, the Moog shit you're doing was sick. I need that, and mm. I need this, and I got a Rhodes up in the house, and, and you know, I got a, a Wurlitzer and all this shit. He's like, oh, cool, man. I like, I'll come through. And he came through first time to just hang. And he ends up playing on seven years, recuts the piano parts for me and some Moog shit for me. And, and, and I'm like, Eric and him vibe. And I'm like, this is the guy. And I'm like, hey, I need some musicians. I'm looking for a bass player. I need someone who can arrange strings. I need a, a horn section. And he plugs me into all these fucking great musicians, right? So 
You know, I get Norwood from Fishbones playing bass on That's here. amazing. Yeah, and Norwood didn't even, I saw him like a year later. I was like, dude, I got a gold record for you. He didn't even know who the fuck I was. Damn. And I was like, after he like, but he comped like half the bass lines in one night, like on the record. The other stuff was played by my man Merlot, who, who ended up like, he worked on all this Dr. Octagon shit. He plays with Jack Johnson now. He's my friend's cousin. He's the only musician I know. He played some shit on it. Norwood, I got um, this, this other bass player who played upright because I used upright on a few songs because I like that sound and I never really went back to it, named Giovanni. He was also a string arranger. He arranges strings and what it's like for me, helped me arrange them. They were a little off, but we fixed them later on. You know, it was, um, it was cool. It, it wasn't fast, hmm. but I was, I was near my dad up in the Bay. So I got to go up to San Francisco a lot. I didn't have, my money was fucked up. Everlast money was terrible. Hmm. John was, um, John is in, rest in peace. He's a unique and idiosyncratic <laughs> individual who seemed to enjoy um, everything that was going around us more than we did. <laughs> he, he hooked up with the shorty. He was, um, you know, we argued a lot because I'm really demanding and he had a lot, a lot of stuff he had to do, but we plugged along and, you know, we made a lot of that shit right then and there. Like, you know, we just made that song tired. Well, I'll get to that, but we made today. Yesterday, just a dream I don't remember. Tomorrow, still a hope I've yet to end up. And, and a bunch of that shit right then and there. And we had a couple of people around us, and we had this guy named Bronx Style Bob, who, who was a rapper who made all these alternative records. He had a band called Super 8. He's an old friend of mine, a dear friend of Eric's. He's part of the Rhyme Syndicate. He sings like an angel. He plays guitar. And he was like, he helped me arrange a lot of the vocals on the record. He helped me with the harmonies. He mm. did a lot of them. He was a huge part of the record, which people don't know. He's credited, but but he was my ace, my ace on it, man. And when we we're making it, we did all these background vocals on that song today. And and the ADAT ate the eight part of the fucking background vocals, three-part harmony in the choruses and all this shit. And I literally cried. Damn. And Bob put his arm around me and was like, D, I'll come do it again tomorrow. Don't Whoa. worry, bro. I love you. And, and I was like, what? He's like, and he took me to the side. He was like, yo, you know you're working on a special record like and just keep the faith and uh i did so bob was like my angel and divine styler mm -hmm. who did one song in the album he also said a lot of the same kind of things that bob had said but but to take it a step further he's a very philosophical guy um me and him would talk about metaphysics a lot and the power of faith and his his uh his belief in Islam, and and it's a lot of theological and metaphysical conversations, and these enlightening conversations awoken a lot of uh, things inside of me, belief, mm. and and helped spur a lot of evolution. I started to change as a human being um, in a way I hadn't before, and questioned a lot of my part, my past values and behaviors, um, and so I'm going through this big transition, and I'm going broke at the same time. 
and Everlast is going broke. Mm. He's a guy who lived way over his means like a rapper, and he's going broke. We got this big, beautiful house in the hills, but he can barely make, he's, he's missing mortgage payments. He's, he's fucked up. He's about to go bankrupt, and it's an intense situation. Needless to say, me and him are arguing a bit. I literally, like, I went up to the bay for a minute to get away from the bullshit, and I came back, and I remember Eric was like, he was like, I have $8 to last me the rest of my life or some <laughs> shit. And I was like, oh, man. And he's like hiding his car because he's late on the payments. And, and I'm like, whatever I got, half of it's yours. And, you know, look, man, we, we held each other down and we were making the record. And, and look, I played it for a bunch of people, friends of mine who came through who were in L.A. And not one motherfucker ever said something negative. Mm. It's one record other than Brand Newbie and where I got nothing but positive response from people I played it for. And that meant a lot to me. You know, my friend Justin Pierce, the actor who, who took his own life, he was one of the champions of the record. I was Pauline and my friend Julie Z, who had a, they had a business together. And, and um, man, it was, it was all positives. East Swift as well, who lived up the block for me. East Swift and was my hangout partner. Yeah, he, he does one song in the album, and he was my partner. And that's how I really got to know him and J-Row. And, man, those guys are wonderful people. And I'd hang out at East Swift at his pad. He had the studio up there to get away from Everlast. And then I would, like, disappear and go to East Swift's house and not let him know and smoke <laughs> out because I could literally walk to his house. And that was my boy, man. That's, you know, shout out to East Swift. He's, he's a great human being. And he, uh, he, he, and I don't think I knew it, he, his being offered me some solace to get away from what I was dealing with. So fast forward, we, we damn near got the record done. He has this, man. oh, I forgot this crazy thing. When we first did the demos, his, Eric's manager, this guy named Carl Stubner, who was, who was a pretty smart guy. I didn't always get along with him, but he's a smart cat. And Carl um, managed Mick Fleetwood. And I guess he played the demos for Mick Fleetwood. And Mick Fleetwood called my fucking house one day. Hmm. And he's like on my phone machine going like, Eric, I don't know what you're doing in New York, but you've got the grease in this one. It's got the magic. Like, it's, I've never heard anything like it before. This That's stuff is so beautiful. Awesome. Like, and it's Mick Fleetwood. And I'm like, what the fuck? So I'm, I'm like, you know, I had all the confirmations. But, but look, Tommy Boy never sold alternative records. That was a big question they, of mine. How could you be, and, and we're you be confident it, that, they could, that they wouldn't fuck this up, you know? Well, in the midst of it, Monica leaves Tommy Boy. Albie, the A&R guy, gets disposed. And Tom Silverman won't return Eric's phone calls. And Eric needs money. And he's broke. So we're on ice with the label. Our conduit's gone and Silverman's not returning calls. And Eric's really, really in a bad place. He's smoking a ton of stogies. How far are y'all in in, into the album? Eighth inning. Mm -hmm. So tracking like bottom of the eighth, close to done. So all the stuff's going on. And, and I haven't been home literally for nine months. And I want to go back. So I'm paying rent on my place in New York. Mm. And I got, I got a house in the life in New York. I want to go the fuck back. God knows why I really didn't need to go back, but I was homesick. So I'm like, man, we got to finish this fucking record. I got to get back to New York. I'm out here and I need, I got shit I got to do. And he's like, he's like, we'll finish. And we have a big argument. And I'm like, dude, we got one fucking song to go. It's a rap song. Get your fucking shit in gear. And one thing about Eric, he's intimidating to a lot of people. He does not intimidate me. Hmm. And I might be one of the few people outside of Mugs he really actually listened to. And he listened to me, I think, specifically during this record because I had the game plan. Right. I saw how to fit the jigsaw puzzle together. And I told him this. I said, don't worry about 
rap or singer-songwriter. It's all got a hip-hop foundation to it. And I was like, people can't see a picture until it's framed. I see the frame and the picture. And he was like, I see it too. And I was like, we got, I see the frame. We just have a frame for the whole world, but this is going to work. Trust me. We're making, we got this. So, so me, him, and John all believe this. And so did his manager, Carl Stubner. I will give him credit for that. So Tommy Boy won't get on the phone, won't cut him a check. We got this one song. I'm on his ass about it. He always ate at the shitty place, Damiano's. I hated the food there. I said to him one day, only an Irishman from LA would eat that bullshit Italian food. <laughs> I was like, are you fucking kidding me with that? So he ate Damiano's. Oh, so we had this one song, Tired In. He does one, he does two verses. I want a three verse song. And he's like, I ate that food. I think I got food poisoning. I was like, that's what you care for oh, eating that man. fucking garbage again. I was like, fucking take care of yourself. You look like shit. He's kind of greenish. And I'm like, I'm going home. My girlfriend's in Vegas at fucking the magic convention. I got the house to myself. I'm fucking away from you guys and by myself for the first time in fucking eight months, I'm out. So, or nine months almost in. And I go home. And before I leave, I, I was like, John, yo, he doesn't look too good. Make sure he has his door open in his room. He's like, I'm going to take a nap. Mm. I'm like, yeah, finish the song tomorrow. Don't fuck up. I was like, you don't look good. I was with him a year earlier or so. And uh, he got really bad food poison in New York. He looked that same way. So what I didn't know is Eric was born with a heart condition. Mm -hmm. he, he has one valve that doesn't work properly. He didn't know it either. He, he, he actually did. He was on Coumadin, but he wasn't taking the right prescription. And it was never a thing. I never really, it was never cognizant of his heart condition. He never talked about it. And, and he uh, went upstairs. I went home. I fell asleep. And my phone, I had left my phone on. And my phone rings in the middle of the night, my cell phone, and I ignore it. And then my house phone rings. And I'm like, well, my cell phone rings again. And I don't like to pick the phone up in the middle of the night because so many either died or went to jail. Yeah. And I don't want to pay bail and I don't want to hear someone died. Save it for the morning. So, and that's kind of a tradition of mine. Like I ain't picking the phone up late at night. But it kept coming. And I see it's John's number. I, I pick up the phone and I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? It's like five in the morning. And he's like, Eric had a heart attack. Mm. I'm like, what the fuck? He's like, I'm at Cedar Sinai. He had a heart attack, and they wouldn't let me. Um, they wouldn't let me get in the ambulance because I'm not Mexican, and I'm here. I said, I'll, I'll get in the cab. We'll see you in a minute. So I go to Cedar Sinai, and I get there, and it took me maybe 45 minutes, an hour to get there. And when I get there, Eric, uh, um, I'm like, what the fuck's up, Eric? He's and John is white as a ghost. He said, I think he might die, and I said, Whoa. what? You said he just had a heart attack, and he was like, he had another heart attack before he got here. And he went to code red. I'm not sure what's going on, but he's in critical condition. And, and he may not make it. So he had two heart like, attacks. What's a he had two heart attacks. So when he had the second one, he had his aorta, which is the valve, separated from his heart. Whoa. So he's going to have double bypass. We have to tell the mother. She's in the valley. We tell his family, Bob. Divine, a couple of people, and we stay in the hospital and all these people come through and we kind of hold a visual for them in the hospital. Whoa. Mr. Cartoon reached out and Esteban came through and, and a bunch of people. And I guess no one knew for 24 hours, but somehow after 36 hours, everyone knew and my phone won't stop ringing and I don't want to talk to anyone. I also had to tell my lady, she's like, where are you? Like, what the fuck? And I was like, fucking I'm with Eric. He's 
like in critical condition, you may die of a heart attack. She's like, oh my God, I'm coming back from Vegas. So she comes back from Vegas and, and we're all in the hospital. The shit is fucking intense, man. We really don't know if he's going to live and or how die. long are you, have y'all been in there at this point? So I guess we went home to shower and stuff and eat and to be with Eric's mom because she's fucking in a way and, and she's staying with us at the house. And we, after 24 hours, we left and we came back the next day. And it's the second day. It's going on 36 hours. And that's when the whole world seemed to find out mm -hmm. about it. And so I'm ducking and diving people. And, and I tell them, I have to get the message of people, Tommy boy, and, you know, like people like Daylon and, and Latifah and these people are all reaching out because they're on the label with him and his friend and, and they know I'm right. there with him. And, 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 you know, the whole world knows. And there's a rumor going around that he was on drugs and, and, you know, he wasn't someone from the hospital who worked or actually said like it was a heart attack. There's no substances involved and sent it up on the internet. It's fucking heavy shit. So Eric's laid up, but he pulls through. And I go to see him a couple of days later, maybe a week later. And I'm there with his mom and his dad, who I didn't really know very well, but had, had oh, I forgot to tell you, we had this big, it was El Nino and his ceiling got all this water in it. And I saw the ceiling was going to buckle. So I moved all the equipment and taped garbage bags over everything. And his dad came and popped the ceiling that had fixed the leak because he's trying to sell his house. But now he has damage in the water damage in the ceiling. But his dad fixed it all. And he did end up selling the house. <laughs> and that's how I met his dad. So the second time I meet his dad, he's in the hospital and Eric comes too. And they're trying to tell him how serious it is. And he looked over and he saw me. He said he saw tears coming down my face. And, and that he knew it was serious. Mm. He didn't know what was going on, but he knew it was fucking serious. So we talked to the doctor afterwards. And he's like, was he under immense stress? And I kind of tell him what's going on. And he's like, well, it all makes sense. He wasn't taking care of himself. His Coumadin is misprescribed. He had a super high stress level. His blood pressure is through the roof. And, and like, look, depression follows after a serious heart attack. And, you know, if you guys can kind of figure out something that can motivate him to get better, if he has a goal worth working towards, like his recovery may be better. His mental is so important in the, in the, in the mix. So, you know, it's not hard to tell. Like he had something to live forward to. Right. This piece of art he created, right? So me and the mom talk about it. And, and he's like, you can't rush him. It's going to be a while till he recovers. I kind of determined with his manager and with Eric that we should finish the record regardless. That he's going to get better. and We're going to finish this record. And we should finish it while he's laid up. So I get the green light to, to go and take the record back to New York and finish it without him. I remember talking to Eric. And he said to me, you know what to do, D. Go finish that motherfucker. Mm. So... So I went to New York, me and John go back, we fly all our shit back. And, and we, we were mixing in New York because we had tried to mix one song with the engineer in LA and it was shit. So, you know, I had, I had uh, Jamie Staub who mixed all the Pete Rock stuff. I love the way his drum sounds. So I, I was like, and he's a white guy who knows rock music. He worked with John Spencer, Blues Explosion. And, and I really liked that record, Acme. So I was like, you know what? I want, I want to get John, I want that guy to do it, Jamie Staub. So he, he, he's going to mix the record in. We post up in, in New York at Sony Studios, and I have basically the burden of the whole record on my shoulders. And you know what? It didn't feel like a burden. It felt like, much like Old Dirty Bastard, 36 Chambers, right. 36 Chambers, I knew I had to, I had lightning in the bottle, get that motherfucker to the finish line. And it's the same feeling. I was like, I'm gonna get this motherfucker to the finish line. And Jamie did a tremendous job mixing the record with me and John, we had a few hiccups, 
We had to fix the strings and recut them. We had this guy, Stephen Kulo, who helped us do it. He did a great job. We fixed everything. Those are the strings on what it's like. And we, we drove it to the home stretch, man. I got the record done and I, put, I talked to Eric about the skits and how to assemble it all. We had done the record thinking with the skits. We did that the white boy is back. Fat Boys are back mm-hmm. thing. We did that in LA. I didn't like the vocal. I fixed it. I had the little musical skits like Pete Rockstone between things. Those phone messages are all real. Prince Paul, Pr- Sendog, you know. and Guru. And the Guru one, I cannot listen to. Um, it's too much for me. Hmm. And me and Guru, oh, I forgot to say this. So I don't want to say Guru is the only reason I ended up doing the record, but I'm in LA with Stout on the Wild Cowboys promo tour at the Mondrian, which is not the Mondrian of today. It was fucked up then. And um, Guru's staying there. And we end up with him at the bar. And he's like, yo, you know my man Everlast. I was like, yeah, that's my man. And... He's like, yeah, he's coming through to meet me. So Everlast comes through and we're hanging out. And Guru was like, y'all motherfuckers is the same dude. He's like, that's the LAU, man. Y'all motherfuckers, I've never seen two dudes the same. And he was like, you're both crazy as shit. Hard-ass white boys. You guys fucking need to fuck with each other. And we had already talked about it, but, but Guru put the battery in our back. And what I didn't know was Eric's a huge Sadat X fan. So he got, he got Sadat to get out, jump on a record, Heart Full of Sorrow. He flew X out there. I was managing X, and it was good vibes. Me and Everlast went to the Super Bowl together that year because we had linked up, and we just, we we had like, you know, we had the bromance going. We had known each other for like 10 years. I knew him from the Ron Syndicate, but we became peoples. So so we were just, I was like my long-lost brother. I was like, this is my guy. Right. You know, so that was a lot of the reason we did the record. But, but you know, rest in peace to, to Guru, man. He had a lot to do with that, and I, I forgot that kind of. So, you know, that was part of it, too. So that's why he did the... The skip for us on the record, which which is too difficult to listen to now. But you know, I put all the skits where I thought they went, mm-hmm. and I se- sequenced the songs into each other, and I got the flow of the record together, and and you know, I think I did a good job in in telling a story with a lot of diverse parts. Right. So that's not an easy thing to do to to mix. Nah, those vibes. But, you know, I had it in my he- man, Mike. I I had that motherfucker in my head. <laughs> It's like you write a screenplay in your head. Mm-hmm. I had the shit written in my head. I knew where it all went. So I fit the parts in that weren't done yet. Send dog, I set that up. Um, but, you know, so we, we put all the pieces together and we turned the record in and we had this, they called this big summit meeting at Tommy Boy. Oh, so first Eric, Eric told me he, I nailed it. He said, you fucking nailed it, D. And I was like, man, thank you. 
Like I, I was like, you were on my shoulder the whole time. A crazy thing too is E. Swift, here's a testament to how cool that motherfucker is. He, he flew to New York to mix his own record. He's like, oh, how's it going? I said, good. I said, can I mix your record? He said, man, I'll just come to New York. I said, yeah, I, Tommy Boy, man, they're cheap. They ain't paying for it. He's like, fuck that. I, I got some things to do out there anyway. So I'm just come through. And East Swift just came through and mixed that shit. That's awesome. And me and him hung out for a couple of days. Yeah, East Swift, man, shout out to that brother. He's the best. So, so um, oh, other thing is, East Swift and J-Ro kept calling me when, when Eric had the heart attack and they lived up the block and I wasn't returning their call. The motherfuckers showed up at the house. Mm. They just showed up. But it was, I was ducking and diving people, man. It was too much. So, so fast forward back to New York. We turned the record in and we had this meeting at Tommy Boy. Me and Carl Stumner walk in and this cat named Sam Crespo who works at Atlantic, he said, yo, I'm just going to let you know this record's fucking incredible but I don't know what the fuck they're going to do with this. Mm. And I was like, okay. And basically that's what this guy named Martin Davies and Tom Silverman said. They said, this record is great. It's going to be a critical success. We do not know how to sell records like this. This is not what we do, but we're going to give it a shot. So that doesn't instill a lot of It does not. It does not. It's like, it's like giving them permission to fumble the bag. We walked out going, God damn it. So we delivered the news to Eric and, we forge on. Eric starts putting a band together with, with Kefis, me and John Hell. I forgot this too. I, I had I had gave a copy to it of it to, to Steve Rifkin because Rifkin was talking about me going to work there. I said, Steve, man, I'm not really in, in hip hop headspace, but I did this record and he was like, this shit is fucking great. Tommy Boy's going to fuck it up. <laughs> so the record came out the first week and sold 4,300 copies. But it did get really good. It was a sleeper. It got great reviews. Okay. Amazing critical response. So y'all hadn't dropped. I mean, did y'all do what it's like? It it first. Okay. First and foremost. But that seemed like That's such a big single. Record. So it didn't it didn't sell well the first week. It 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 it, it didn't cook for six months. Mm. I'll tell you what happened. So we sold forty three hundred albums, not forty three thousand. Right. Forty three hundred in the days of sound scan, and we're dead in the water, man. I figured we're dead in the water. To Tommy Boy's credit, they hung in there with that motherfucker. Mm, they worked. Eric puts his band together. My old publicist from Electra, ironically, Beth Jacobson, is working the record. And she loves me and I love her. And she goes hard for my record. This critic named John Leland, do you know who that is? No. He wrote for Spin. He was the editor-in-chief. He championed the record. He loved the record. So this guy named Charles Aaron. They both loved the record and championed the record. So... I have these guys that spin the most important kind of, you know, alternative magazine in the world, digging. The, they're the pitchfork of the day. And they're writing about this thing. MTV catches wind of it a little bit. A guy named Fred Jordan, rest in peace. He was the guy who they played records for at MTV. He was the, the like, the, the guy who okayed, like, music up there, rap music and all kinds of shit. He was, he was my man. So Fred... Loved the record. And Fred called me up and he said, Dante, yo, this Everlast shit is crazy. I'm, I'm, I told him to add this shit. So it's going to go on 120 minutes. But I told him, I told him to put in rotation. They're going to test it. But this shit is dope. Mm -hmm. And he was like, the whole album is dope. So Fred Jordan, I was like, wow. You know, he had a lot of, a lot of pull at that point. And he was a really nice guy. He used to come to my summer house and all that. I remember sending him a platinum record. It was I was, I was really happy to be able to do that. So, so look, man, Tommy Boy hung in there with the record. I got the band together. We do our first show in New York, and I, we rehearsed the shit out of them. 
and they sounded fucking good. And we do the first show in New York at this club called Coney Island High on St. Mark's Place that I used to hang out at that was like the cool, like alt-rock spot in New York. And, yo, this motherfucker put it down. He hmm. slayed that shit. He, he put it down. Next day, the Daily News, huge write-up. New York Times, John Leland. No, was it Leland or Pirellis? I want to say John Pirellis championed it in the New York Times. It It is... You know, they say it's like, you know, talking about rock rap, and they're saying how he, like Beck, stands out from the crowd, that he's making something that's uncategorizable and, and all this fucking shit. And, you know, man, people are telling me the record's great, and MTV starts to look at it a little bit. It goes on 120 minutes, and the station in Seattle called The N. They're like, they're like K-Rock's twin in Seattle. Mm. They're probably the most forward-thinking, progressive you know, modern rock station in the country, they started playing the record and it reacts, it goes. So K-Rock jumps on it and it goes, goes. So there it is. So we have a radio record, but it took six months from the record to come out, which comes out in the fall. It was, it came out early fall. It was a hit by Christmas time. Or I remember we went top 10, sold 74,000 copies the week before Christmas. And I was at a Christmas party and A&R guy came up to me, a guy I don't really like who had kind of jerked me around on the deal. I'll leave him nameless. He, he was like, you got it. He's like, congratulations, you have a hit record. And he had a hat on, and I took that thing and threw it across the room and said, go fuck yourself. <laughs> um, but he was right. I had a hit record. And the record kept going, 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 man. And, you know, it became a hit record. Like, he got the Lenny Kravitz tour because Lenny Kravitz, like, walked up to him at a party and was like, hey, I love your record. You want to go on tour? Wow. And Eric was like, fuck yeah. You know, it was like one of those kind of things where it became every artist's favorite record too. And, and you know, it changed the course of both of our lives and musically and, and uh, economically and philosophically. There was a, a deep, you know, there was a lot of mojo. It's not called Whitey Ford Sings and Blues for nothing. Cause, and he, he gave it that title before all this shit happened. And it was his, his game. It was his play on, you know, Raleigh Fingers and all the baseball names right. that the Wu-Tang guys had. So it was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna, you're Raleigh Fingers. I'm going to be Whitey Ford because, you know, he's an Irish guy. He played for the Yankees. I love the Yankees. Eric, Eric's a Yankee fan, even though he's from L.A. And so, you know, that's what we ran with. Whitey Ford sings the blues, which was kind of a non sequitur of a title. But he got to inhabit this character, Whitey Ford, and, and be a person that allowed him to detach from House of Pain and Everlast, which was brilliant when I think about it, though I didn't know it at the time. Hmm. Um, and, and somehow... All of this shit connected. Look, the moon and the stars were in our corner. We had nothing to lose and everything to gain. And we threw caution in the wind and, and we nailed it. And to me, still the best record I ever made because it was the one that took me outside of what I knew I could do and allowed me to take all the stuff that I grew up influenced by and throw it in one big pot and stew it up and, and fucking have it connect. And it made me know that I wasn't crazy, that um, there was an audience that, like me, pre-internet, um, had a, a foot in a lot of different cultures and could speak lots of different musical languages. And if you listen to that record, man, uh, it may not be obvious, but everything from Otis Redding to Rage Against the Machine is, is in that motherfucker and everything in between, including Fiona Apple and the Beastie Boys and Massive Attack and Wu-Tang Clan and Big Daddy Kane and the Beatles and all that other shit I love that, that most people might not decipher is all in that bitch. Hmm. Well, we're going to leave it right there for now, for sure. but that's, that's beautiful. It's great to hear about how real life and community and like personal change and growth for you 
and Everlast seems to be like baked into the project. Like it really does put it in a whole nother light. And it makes the success like even more inspiring in that way. You know, it's always great to be successful with people you love, right? Because mm -hmm. I've been successful with people I didn't care for. And it wasn't really that fun. It didn't mean shit to me. That one meant so much. And, you know, like when I go full circle on it, look, man, John Gamble's dead. He saved Eric's life by mm -hmm. calling the ambulance that night, mm -hmm. right? My brother died, you know, and, and Eric would have died if John hadn't been there and done that. And there's, that's never lost on me. Um, and, and I have to say, like, I always got all the props for that record. You know, I co-wrote some of it. And, and look, man, I was definitely, me and Eric were the visionaries, and I, I saw how to steer that ship. But I could not have made that record without John Gamble. He was my co-pilot. Um, he helped. Look, I was the guy, like, I had the equation. I knew the answer, but I didn't know the mathematical right. question to get there. He saw the equation to yeah. get me to my answer and that's invaluable so even when i look back at that now with john having passed it takes a whole nother meaning to to it all it makes it all the more important and and look man that record is the record to me as a producer the high point of my career and and i made it with two of my favorite people in the whole world and we got to reap the benefits it was a very very in that one year I probably grew more than I had in the previous five to 10 before it. Mm. And Eric as well. And, and through tragedy comes great growth on his behalf. But you know what's funny, man? I knew he was going to live. I can't explain it other than that. When, when all that shit happened, I was like, oh, I'm going to go finish the record. We're going to have a hit record. Like, I knew it. Mm -hmm. I can't even bullshit. I had so much confidence. And everything that came got thrown in front of me before the record was a hit. I just brushed that shit off. Like, fuck all y'all. Shit's going to work out. And it worked out. Well, we're going to sit in a, and, and, and explore what them benefits and rewards look like. I'm really curious and, to see how it changed. But uh, we're going to leave it here for now. I mean, that's just an amazing, uh, inspiring story. I didn't know all that backstory about the album. So it's like really putting it in. I mean, I'm writing a screenplay like, about it now. There we go. <laughs> there so, we go. You know, I, I feel like I need to write it because it's a, it's a story about like two people who are lost who found each other. And and, you know, we, we were lost at sea and we, we found land together and reaped the benefits. Word. And it was all built on just, you know, a deep, a deep friendship. So. Word up. It's a beautiful thing. Stony Island Audio. Stony Island Audio.